Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys at swanbitcoin.com. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. This week, investment strategist Lynn Alden and Nick Carter, partner at Castle Island Ventures. Glad you found your way here. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Swan Signal Live. I am your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Uh, we have another fantastic pairing for you today. Really excited to be here with Nick and Lynn. I will introduce them in just a moment, but first I will shill Swan for you for just a moment. Talk to you about what we've built here at Swan. We have built the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys. Um, and you can just, it's one, two, three, you set you know, your bank account, connect your bank account, you set the frequency and amount you want to buy. And we buy it for you. And then you can withdraw it automatically if you'd like as well. So we do that with extremely low fees, up to 57% lower than Cash App and up to 80% lower than Coinbase. Get off Coinbase, get on Swan. Uh, And in case you missed it, we're setting up uh, daily buys. It's going to be launching soon. So you can buy every single day, catch those dips uh, a little little better even than than on the weekly. And you can sign up for that at swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys. All right. I am thrilled to welcome Lynn Alden back to the show. She's an investment strategist. Lynn was previously on episode 21 with Jeff Booth. Uh, that was the, or has been so far, the top Swan Signal episode yet. Lynn, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. All right. And Nick Carter, partner at Castle Island Ventures, well-known, of course, for his great Bitcoin writing. Excited to have you here, Nick, along with Lynn, for your first appearance. First time. Thank you. Glad to be here. Exciting for this one. All right, so um, let's dive into talking about some news that came up recently. Um, uh, you were on, Lynn, a great episode of Preston Fish's The Investor's Podcast with Jeff Booth and Luke Grauman. I think it was about 10 days ago. Uh, this was after the MicroStrategy news, but before Fidelity announced that it is launching a Bitcoin-only fund. Um, both of these, of course, are on the heels of big macro investors becoming incredibly bullish and uh, in, you know, revealing positions in Bitcoin, Paul Tudor Jones, Raul Powell, etc. Um, these are some pretty big dots starting to form a pretty bright line. Uh, what's your take on micro strategy and, and the fidelity, uh, fidelity announcements? I think those are important parts of this this whole narrative because uh, you know in each halving cycle basically Bitcoin reaches a new a new kind of group of investors right so uh, largely up till now it's been a mostly retail driven uh, you know asset class uh, but in the past couple of years it's starting to get more institutional access points uh, so seeing corporations at least you know small corporations begin to diversify into Bitcoin uh, and seeing some of the big players uh, begin to to allocate to it so. You know, there's already been, uh, you know, a certain amount of, uh, you know, family office participation, a uh, little bit of hedge funds, but, you know, seeing kind of bigger names uh, go into that space is, is definitely very important for the asset class, uh, you know, as we go into this, this next cycle. And I'm sure Nick can talk more about the fidelity action. Uh, you know, I think that he probably has more to say there. Well, I, I, you know, I haven't been out of fidelity for a couple of years. Uh, I'm not really privy to all the details there. Um, but I will say that Fidelity's commitment to Bitcoin uh, since 2014 has been uh, unquestionable. And they've, they've kept building products relating to Bitcoin that whole time. Uh, although it's, you know, it's a long journey, like any large financial institution, it takes a long time to get full buy-in. Uh, but I think 
to me, important just to kind of sit back and realize that the financial plumbing in terms of access points to Bitcoin is so superior today as compared with 2017. It's almost incomparable. So those vehicles like, uh, you know, what, what appears to be this new Fidelity fund, uh, the CME is a highly liquid venue now. There's a lot of participants that can only really trade those CME futures. It wasn't really liquid or meaningful in 2017. And then you have, you know, really high quality custodial offerings, uh, obviously like the one Fidelity offers, but there's others now as well. Uh, these things just fundamentally didn't exist in 2017. So the Bitcoin's market's capacity to absorb new capital from a more diverse set of participants it has also progressed significantly, uh, which is why I think, the, you know, there's there's no boundary to where this could go this time. Yeah, I cited uh, Fidelity's uh, custodian solution in my uh, Bitcoin article from a couple months ago. So this is still just, a, it's not like Fidelity is entering it for the first you know time, obviously. It's just they're building on the fact that they're already in the space. So I, I agree. It's, you know, it's a totally different world than it was three, four years ago. It really is. Yeah, uh, it, it's, go ahead, Nick. I was just going to say, you know, the this uh, the fund. There's a lot of details around it, but once you have those little pieces built, like custom, you can build all sorts of other financial products and asset management products on top of it. And uh, now that we have those puzzle pieces in place, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of different asset managers jump in to the mix. I think we even saw a um, a Bitcoin product release in um, in Austria today on a Viennese uh, stock exchange. Um, you see this kind of gradual development. There was a 3IQ one in Canada recently. You just see more ways to express an opinion on Bitcoin and more jurisdictions emerging all the time. Uh, it's just like the steady march of progress. Yeah, and I would expect that we'll continue to see more news like that you know, in the coming months and years. Uh, and it just feels like it's sort of building. It's like a snowball rolling down the mountain and it's just kind of exponentially advancing, which is what we would expect uh, from, you know, this network technology built on top of other network technologies using the network effect of money. There's all kinds of exponential, uh, you know, reinforcing going on with Bitcoin. Um, so when we're talking about these financial products like this, you know, Fidelity Fund, the CME futures, et cetera, you know, there's kind of like, I guess, continuing concern among Bitcoiners that, you know, using these kind of tools, rehypothecating Bitcoin or, you know, creating like paper versions of Bitcoin, et cetera, might uh, suppress price or, uh, you know, basically maybe even bring Bitcoin like under control, sort of what it, like it did with gold. Um, I talked with Preston Pish about this last week on this show and he had a good answer for it. He said that um, Bitcoin democratizes final settlement, right? And since final settlement is so, so much easier with Bitcoin that that risk of rehypothecation and kind of control of the asset is diminished. Would love to hear what you guys have to think, um, have to say. Nick, you want to start? Yeah, I, I have a similar answer. Um, I, you just compare Bitcoin with gold um, and look at the settlement characteristics. And because it's easy to take physical final delivery of an arbitrary quantity of Bitcoin, if you're concerned about your custodian or bank, or you know, credit provider uh, or broker, you can withdraw your coins. Obviously, if it's in the terms and service that you can never withdraw, then obviously you can't. But in that, at that point, you never really had ownership of actual Bitcoin. You only have, ever had an IOU. But 
to any service that allows for withdrawal, if you become the slightest bit concerned, you can opt out of that system. That's different, I would say, from gold. Not to disparage gold, but you know, gold is physically instantiated and it lends itself to being trapped in these kind of walled gardens where every link in the supply chain from refiners to custodians uh, to financial institutions is heavily authenticated and it's costly to get gold outside of that supply chain. We saw these dislocations between New York gold and London gold earlier this year because you had to physically transport gold planes, um, whereas with Bitcoin, that physical final settlement is easier and cheaper. The other thing I would say is that verification is cheaper for Bitcoin. Uh, you know, I can prove that a Bitcoin payment I'm receiving is genuinely Bitcoin and that you know, it's the real thing. Uh, the equivalent with gold would be to use uh, you know, an XRF spectrometer or something like that to verify the, the atomic properties. Um, I can also, um, a third party can prove to me that they own a certain quantity of Bitcoin, which is very important. This is why I'm always blathering on about proof reserves, because a third party can prove that they are in theory solvent, or at the very least that they have a quantity of Bitcoin that they claim to have. Uh, so that's why I think the custodial environment for Bitcoin is not so concerning to me, because A, we have the ability to hold these custodians more accountable uh, through these cryptographic operations, and B, because if you know, shit hits the fan, basically, we can withdraw um, and, and take final ownership over our physical Bitcoin effectively. I agree. I, I think so. Some of the people that brought up those concerns, I think, you know, had had, uh, you know, good basis to be concerned about that because any asset that has a, a reasonably high stock to flow ratio is is subject to uh, more market manipulation compared to an asset where, you know, most of what's produced is consumed in the same year. So, you know, gold's had this long standing history where if you look at the paper markets, there, there's far more paper assets than the underlying gold metal most of the time. So a lot of people think they own gold except if they were to all try to withdraw their gold at the same time, you know, basically the exchange would, would cease to function in, in most of those environments. So, uh, you know, gold's always had that, that issue, but I think, you know, there's, there's kind of two reasons for Bitcoin to have less of it. One is this issue that it, it's much easier to, to authenticate and transport, uh, you know, digitally. And then two, because it's, it's so uh, volatile that, uh, you know, it's, it's a much less kind of leveraged uh, area uh, for, at least for these major exchanges, than gold. Uh, so you know a lot of a lot of uh, you know the custodians that that, that all these more like uh, derivative contracts, they want more you know underlying Bitcoin exposure than they would for gold, which tends to be far less volatile in a larger asset class. We have a related question coming in from our Telegram chat. It's at t.me/swansignal. If anybody's interested in jumping in there and chatting, we also have quite a few people chatting in the YouTube. Um, at youtube.com slash swan signal. Uh, so this is from Joe Rogers. He says that he's heard uh, speculation from our friend uh, Hass McCook, Bitcoiner, well-known on Bitcoin Twitter, about fractional Bitcoin reserves being an issue that is suppressing price. Uh, also, Nick, you've been a pretty strong advocate for proof of reserves, as you were talking, uh, alluding to earlier. Um, can you share your overall opinions on if you think exchanges are indeed fractional, fractional reserve banking Bitcoin? And what are the long-term implications, if so? The truth is that currently, for a lot of these offshore exchanges, we have no way of knowing whether they're fractional or not. We just have to take them at their word that they're effectively not committing fraud against their depositors. Um, it would be much better if 
there were self-regulatory forces in the industry where depositors had a habit of using exchanges, which did attest to the to their to the existence of reserves. Um, so market forces. That would be my kind of ideal situation, whereby users um, were to, you know, migrate over to custodians that were much or exchanges that were more serious about proving the existence of reserves. Uh, barring that, I think what's also possible is that you get a regulatory outcome, which would be kind of adverse, where uh, assuming there's more quadrigas, I'm sure there's other quadrigas lurking out there, especially the offshore exchanges. Assuming there's more quadrigas, regulators could say, like they did in Canada, hey, we're actually going to effectively disallow uh, custodial ownership of Bitcoins at all, and, and we're going to demand that exchanges issue or brokers issue Bitcoins on a pass-through basis, and that you're not allowed to hold them on behalf of depositors at all which is kind of a bad outcome. Uh, it looks like that's what we're going to get in Canada at some point. That'd be a bad outcome because there's always demand for banks. Uh, I think that's, that's a reasonable thing to exist, you know, to want uh, you know, intermediated access to your coins if you don't feel equipped to hold them for yourself. Uh, but yes, I'm 100% sure that there's other exchanges which are uh, covertly fractional. It could be due to bugs, could be due to mistakes, accounting errors, uh, from what I've seen, a lot of exchanges don't really have a good apprehension of their balances. Maybe they end up with a bunch of stranded UTXOs that are uneconomical to uh, to withdraw, for instance, uh, you know, due to fees. Uh, there's a lot of ways that exchanges can kind of tip over into fractional territory. Lynn, do you have any thoughts on fractional reserve banking in Bitcoin? Not strongly because it's not an area that I that I you know go into that much depth on. I do you know from what I've seen, the offshore ones are more you know there's more risk in some of these offshore smaller operations uh, where there's more leverage. I think uh, whereas you know if we're talking about kind of more institutional uh, you know uh, custodian uh, type situations and and futures contracts and things like that, you know a lot of them have have pretty strict uh, requirements. Uh, but yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's let's move on then. Thanks for the answer there, and I hope that answered your question, Joe. Um, let's move on to the Joe uh, Jerome Powell speech. Um, so, as usual, this the content of the speech was you know pretty well understood before it happened. But Powell did confirm that the Fed will tolerate uh, inflation over two percent for short periods of time. He said um, last week we had Andy Estremon, like I said, with uh, Preston, and he said that Powell is now the anti-Volker. Um, but is this really a change in policy or just a small kind of recognition of the reality of an even more expansionist policy that may be required at this point? Lynn, you want to start on that one? Uh, it's kind of a small change in policy. So it's actually really nothing new because they were already telegraphing this ahead of time. So anyone who reads the, the Fed meeting minutes saw that they were willing to allow for an overshoot of inflation. Uh, and even going back all the way to 2018, They've been they've been emphasizing their two percent inflation target as a symmetric target. So they you know they started to slip in the word symmetric more and more, uh, and then in 2020, uh, you know due to this this whole you know the pandemic, they started to more directly say where well, we want to overshoot it. Uh, and then you know Jackson Hole he went out and, and called it average inflation targeting. And the main thing was kind of just more directly saying it and publicizing it at a big venue compared to only you know sticking in their meeting minutes, which are. Are, are all to some extent subject to uh, disagreements. Because, for example, 
some things can show up in the meeting minutes, but not necessarily become official policy because the different participants can can discuss and, and agree and disagree with each other. So for the Fed chair to say it at Jackson Hole was a little bit more of an adamant, you know, uh, outcome. The main thing I, I think to keep in mind is that the Fed doesn't have a lot of tools to directly create inflation. Uh, you know, they they've had they've been they've been wanting higher inflation by the way they measure it, which is the PCE. Uh, and they haven't reached that that target very often, you know. According again, according to the way they measure it, uh, so it's it's really more of like the if you look in historically, it's in this sort of environment where rates hit zero and where the Fed's expanding the monetary base and do, you know kind of using tools like that. It's really more about deficit spending that tends to be a somewhat more uh, inflationary outcome, and so the Fed is kind of indicating that they're not going to get in the way of higher inflation. Uh, but you know they're they're not really the 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 causers of that. They have to kind of it's more about the fiscal authority how they choose to spend if they want to give out you know more stimulus checks, more you know more unfunded tax cuts, whatever they want to do, they could potentially cause more inflation. And then if that happens, the Fed can just kind of stand by. So we have seen a rebound in inflation expectations from the March low, although currently they're you know they're they're hovering under two percent you know for most of the durations. Uh, so it's really just kind of a rebound in inflation rather than higher infl inflation expectations. Lynn, I wanted to ask you something, actually. So uh, many times you've indicated you think we're headed into uh, a more inflationary environment, uh, potentially kind of stagflation even. Um, and the, the rebuttal I always hear is that kind of demographics are destiny. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a just fundamentally hard time finding inflation and you know growth which i guess is you know closely related uh due to you know the the aging workforce and and so on and you know those other kind of funds like deflationary factors um in light of this i know it doesn't really change much but what do you make of the prospects for actually causing inflation in the u.s uh, especially given like the japan example which everyone always talks about Sure. Yeah, there's a couple of things unpacked there. So definitely demographics play a large role, as does technology, which is what I talked to, to Jeff Booth about last time. So technology, of course, is a very strong deflationary force. Um, and that's what we saw, you know, in, in many decades before, including the last time we we're in one of these long term debt cycles, this, this last kind of period of, of, of kind of a rebound in inflation, which started back in the 1930s and 40s. You know, they had a lot of technology come online, they had high debts, and it caused a, a pretty big disinflationary trend until they intentionally devalued their currency. So all of those trends in practice are very disinflationary. So, so uh, you know, weaker demographics, more technology, more debt, all of those are disinflationary forces until they cause enough of a breaking point that policymakers uh, use more aggressive uh, tactics to devalue their currency. So back in the 1930s and 40s, for example, uh, you know, first they devalue the dollar versus gold, and then they ran very large deficits uh, in cap yields uh, for treasuries below the inflation rate for about a decade. So uh, the combination of that kind of one-two punch uh, devalued currency pretty considerably and devalued debts relative to nominal GDP by extension, even though nominal debts barely came down at all. Like there was like a, you know, maybe 12 to 15% nominal reduction in debt, but debt as a, a percentage of GDP collapsed considerably. And you can point to, to uh, you know, some places like, for example, Argentina. They don't have, you know, phenomenal demographics, but, they, you know, they, they have no problem getting inflation, right? Because, uh, you know, in some, in, in extreme cases, those monetary conditions and fiscal conditions can override, uh, you know, demographics issues or technology-based issues. 
Uh, and Japan is, is kind of a unique situation because they are the world's largest creditor nation, uh, which means that they own more foreign assets uh, you know, than foreigners own of their assets by a, by a, a wide margin. And so they've kind of had this, this massive savings clause. So even though they have high debt, uh, sovereign debt relative to GDP, a lot of that debt is held internally. And then they also hold a ton of foreign assets. And so as a result, and they also, they, you know, they run positive, uh, you know, trade balances, uh, positive, uh, you know, roughly balanced trade balance, but then positive current account balance. So they kind of have more money flowing into their economy than out every year. And so that, that tends to be, you know, kind of supportive uh, for a currency. Uh, whereas the U.S. is kind of the opposite situation. We have, we have, we're the world's largest debtor nation. So, you know, we, we've, due to running persistent trade deficits and current account deficits uh, over the past several decades, we've developed a deeply negative, uh, you know, net international investment position. Uh, so we're somewhat more more vulnerable to a, a cycle trend in inflation. And uh, so my primary outlook is to kind of see these, these large monetized deficits eventually kind of spur higher inflation. Now, I think, that can, I think that can take a lot of forms. So for example, I see people, you know, calling for like hyperinflation by the end of the year or next year, like that, that's not the kind of approach I'm looking at. It's more like a, a trend change from ever lower, uh, you know, disinflation to, you know, kind of a, a bottoming process and then a potential rise in that trend towards a more inflationary uh, situation. So mindful of this, I mean, what is the metric for inflation that you pay attention to? I mean, you know, a lot of people would say that asset prices reflect inflation. Um, is it like the dollar index? Is it CPI? Like, what is the purest metric for actually measuring this? A couple of different ways. I, I look at I look at CPI. I look at PCE. Things like that. Those those kind of understate it. Uh, asset prices are definitely a big thing. That that's been more over the past decade because we've had the monetary base expansion, but not really aggressive fiscal spending to to really get that into the real economy. So it all concentrated towards the top and got into asset prices. Uh, I also look at, uh, for example. Uh, Precious metals, uh, you know, gold in particular, because it's a it's a large asset class, so it doesn't it doesn't move a ton on its own, other than uh, some of these more inflationary expectations or in response to real yields. Uh, so I like to look at things like you know the S and P five hundred as priced in gold, or just the nominal price movement of gold, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, in addition, I also look at the expansion of broad money supply itself. So historically, uh, the year over year change in in M two broad money supply. Has, has gone with inflation, but tends to be higher than inflation, right? Because we also get the, the, the other disinflationary forces of better technology, better productivity, things like that. Uh, but some of, historically, some of the big spikes in, in broad money supply have eventually led to uh, higher inflation levels. So uh, I kind of look at a variety of different metrics uh, to, to kind of measure that over time. And then the, the, the main metric I look at to kind of precede inflation is deficit spending. Uh, by the fiscal authority, because that's what historically tends to drive, uh, you know, kind of a, a deal with a long-term debt cycle and then bring a more disinflationary shift into a more inflationary shift. So let's talk a little bit about those fiscal authorities. We have a big election coming up. I know that that's something that, you know, macro uh, investors and strategists need to pay attention to. Uh, do you think, Lynn, that we're going to see any, like any difference uh, in terms of like economically speaking um, and uh, fiscally speaking. And then of course, you know, as it relates to inflation, potential inflation, CPI and, and assets, whatever, um, between, you know, the two possible outcomes of this election. 
Yeah, I think you can get different outcomes. Obviously, uh, there's, there's different uh, types of spending they want to do. Uh, one thing I've been emphasizing is there's more than two outcomes, right? Because there's also, in, in, in terms of who wins, that, that's obviously, you know, the big binary choice, right? Wh which president uh, is, is here next year. But it's also uh, if, if the uh, Congress is gridlocked with that president or not. So, for example, you could get a Biden victory, but then the Senate could stay red, for example. Right. And then and then we're more in a situation like we saw in in, you know, for example, Obama's second term, where there actually wasn't a lot of fiscal spending because uh, we were more in gridlock. Whereas if you get if you get a Trump win and, and the Senate stays red and you have a pretty strong kind of red sweep. Right. Then, you know, Trump's a very spendy president, uh, either either in the form of spending or in the form of of unfunded tax cuts, for example. On the other hand, if you get a blue sweep, you're also likely to see a pretty good amount of spending. Uh, and and you know Biden would probably probably spend more, but also could potentially raise taxes more. So it's unclear wh whether the deficit would be bigger uh, in either of those scenarios. I think one of the one of the you know potentials for a more disinflationary period would be to see, for example, like I said, a Biden win and a Senate uh, red hold, and then you have gridlock, and then you know probably probably less uh, of both things. Uh, so you know, even kind of, I think the, the long-term trend I'm tracking is a probable shift from a disinflationary trend to a more inflationary trend. Uh, but, you know, ever, ever since we kind of run off this fiscal cliff at the end of July, right? So ever since the, the PPP loans were not really happening and ever since the extra unemployment benefits uh, stopped going out and the stimulus checks are long since spent, I've been saying, okay, like, you know, we had this big reflationary rebound, uh, but, now they're back in gridlock, so we have to kind of we have to see what happens over the next couple months to see if if we're probably you know it might take something like either more civil unrest or another big asset price decline to to spur policymakers to do something because as long as stock markets you know as as long as stocks only go up uh, as long as Tesla's going up as long as stock splits can make uh, you know the stock prices soar uh, you know and there's not kind of a a ton of protesting and things like that. They don't really have a strong incentive to to do another, you know, big fiscal uh, boost. Nick, have you been thinking about this at all? Yeah, and I think Lynn covered it well there. I, what I would say is I've noticed that the conservatives are not a party of fiscal responsibility anymore. Uh, that a time seems to have long since gone, and um, both parties seem united on their desire to to spend excessively and, and grow the size of government fundamentally. Uh, I haven't really noticed much of a difference between the two of them. Uh, the only difference is the kind of, I guess, spending programs that they would pursue, uh, although there's certainly some commonalities. But um, it seems to me that there's a political demand in this country or growing political demand or normalization of kind of unfettered handouts in the form of uh, either you know tax cuts or uh, UBI-like programs. Uh, these have been kind of normalized in the last 18 months. They were unconscionable, you know, two years ago. You know, Yang kind of brought them into the conversation, and now it's effectively mainstreamed, uh, the notion of uh, kind of semi-permanent governance stimulus directly to individuals. And I think that's notable because that's kind of, I call it high-velocity issuance because that's directly into the actual economy especially if that's going right to households, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, QE, which it has kind of a hard time making it into the real economy, so to speak. Uh, so I think regardless, we're going to get significant spending 
Uh, and, you know, my view of this is that um, that's fine. Like some amount of spending is appropriate, but the government is not the best allocator of funds. Uh, I think the free market does a better job at that. Uh, so I, I never see this questioned or scrutinized, the notion that the government should be the primary allocator uh, of, of capital in the economy, especially as the government spending share of GDP grows from kind of 30, 35%, where it normally is to north of 50%, where it effectively is today. So uh, I want to turn to talking about Bitcoin as collateral. Uh, Raul Powell posted yesterday a couple screenshots from his monthly uh, GMI reports uh, newsletter that is going out to subscribers. Um, he discussed Bitcoin collateral in it, and he called Bitcoin pristine collateral. Uh, he described how the debasement of collateral um, has created this environment where the tail, he said the tail risk of really bad outcomes are much fatter than we are comfortable with. Um, and then he continued to say that all we need uh, to get Bitcoin from where it is now as a form of collateral to the future of collateral for a global economy is that it can produce a yield curve. Um, Lynn, I thought, you know, I heard the term yield curve and I thought of you. Uh, can, can you talk to us about what you think Raul is saying here and what the idea of like, how could Bitcoin produce a yield curve now or in the future? I haven't, I didn't look into his, uh, his tweet in specific, so I don't want to talk for, uh, for him. Uh, you know, I do think I, I'm mostly approaching Bitcoin similar to, to gold at the current time, but as a, as a smaller, you know, kind of a smaller growthier version of it, right? So, you know, whereas treasuries, for example, historically pay you a yield, uh, but they have counterparty risk and they're not, you know, most of them are not inflation adjusted. And even the ones that are inflation adjusted are adjusted to the government's definition of, of inflation. Uh, whereas gold and Bitcoin and some other commodities are, are scarce, yieldless assets, right? So in an environment, historically, if you look at gold historic price performance compared to treasuries, for example, uh, you know, gold, people often think of it as an inflation hedge, but it's really a negative real yield hedge. So, so gold's year-over-year -year price change tends to uh, inversely correlate to real treasury yields uh, or real bank account yields. So if you, if you, can, put bank, if you can put cash in a bank, and say inflation's low, it's 2%, and you can get 4% from your, from your bank, your treasury, you're making a positive 2% real yield. So there's a strong incentive to, to save in that way, uh, to save in fiat, and it puts kind of a higher opportunity cost on, on things like gold that are, that are yieldless, but you know, kind of scarce inflation-adjusted asset. On the other hand, when you have periods where, where real yields are negative, uh, those yieldless assets suddenly become a lot more attractive because they're scarce, uh, but they have no counterparty risk and they can't be inflated away. And, uh, you know, the, the whole opportunity cost for them either goes away or even becomes negative. If, if a zero yield is better than what you're getting from a, you know, a real treasury yield, suddenly there's an opportunity cost to holding treasuries in, instead of holding uh, gold or silver or Bitcoin and things like that. Uh, so I'm focusing less on the, on the yield itself. And I think over time, if Bitcoin becomes, you know, a larger asset class, just like there used to be, monetary uh, systems built on gold as an asset class, uh, you could conceivably have more and more monetary systems built on Bitcoin. And of course, we already see that in the, in the form of, of some of these uh, ways to get yield from it, which is basically like, you know, operating like a bank, uh, you know, to my knowledge, currently not, you know, FDIC insured or anything like that. So there, there's more kind of nominal risk there. Uh, but yeah, as, as things build out, you can get more systems built on top of that underlying collateral. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll just add to that. So 
there is a vibrant credit market that exists on Bitcoin already. Uh, it's because there are entities that seek to borrow in Bitcoin terms and their uh, actual revenues are denominated in Bitcoin terms too. So it makes sense. It kind of stands to reason it would have Bitcoin denominated financing requirements. We also see this with Ethereum. I know I'm not supposed to mention that on here. Or okay. uh, stable coins. <laughs> uh, there's a big, very vibrant kind of stable coin lending market. We're talking about entities that have, they want to obtain capital efficiency denominated in stable coins. They don't want to exit the crypto ecosystem. They want to stay on crypto financial infrastructure. So they want to borrow in kind. Uh, with Bitcoin, you know, big, big borrowers would be miners, for instance, uh, who receive their payouts in Bitcoin, uh, obviously, from the protocol, or entities that are performing the GBD arbitrage. I know that's kind of a shorter term play that's maybe not going to be around forever. Um, but there's certainly credit that exists on top of Bitcoin. Obviously, that's not risk-free. I don't think there really is anything uh, such as a risk-free rate. I think that's kind of a misnomer anyway. Uh, generally speaking, the whole point of Bitcoin is that it's a liability-free asset. It's no one's liability, just like gold. So it shouldn't deterministically come with a yield. That yield has to be produced by operationalizing it and conducting underwriting like any of these lenders do, for instance. Uh, but it just so happens that the Bitcoin uh, kind of credit market is so vibrant right now that those yields on Bitcoin at most of the larger lenders are, you know, kind of six to nine percent, which uh, is kind of confusing to some people, given that that's so structurally high. But I would say that's because we have a kind of a trapped little silo here that's not that well integrated into the rest of the financial system. So Bitcoin flavored uh, loans is still a very attractive thing. That's why borrowers are willing to pay richly for that. So Raul, we'll continue, and you can mention Ethereum on this on this podcast on this show, Nick. It's okay. In fact, I have a question for you uh, that we'll mention Ethereum in it in just a minute. Um, so Raul did, then stated, and I know you may not have read this yet. It just came out yesterday, and that's fine. You guys want to pass on this, but he went on to say that revolution in DeFi, the revolution in DeFi, is doing just that. It's establishing a forward curve of future value, and he said that it will establish the time preference for Bitcoin over 30 years or more. And he's talking about establishing like a, you know, a long-term yield curve like you would with treasuries. Um, so Nick, does that make sense to you? Um, DeFi on Bitcoin and using uh, basically like you're talking about kind of financialized products on top of Bitcoin to produce um, what we can, you know, evaluate as the time preference for Bitcoin over a 30 year period. Yeah, and I enjoyed, um, was it Nick Baccio's comments, uh, his writing on um, how Lightning could be the source of an interest rate for Bitcoin. You can certainly see how that would come to pass. Uh, DeFi on Bitcoin, I mean, I wouldn't even call it DeFi necessarily, but yeah, the, the instrumentalization of Bitcoin as collateral, which is maybe like a more precise way of describing DeFi, that has always made a lot of sense to me, and it's very compelling to me. Uh, we're already seeing it. It's much more convenient for lots of Bitcoiners to take out dollar loans against Bitcoin that they held for tax efficiency purposes, just pure convenience purposes. Uh, this is a vibrant segment already. Uh, it totally makes sense. Moving forward, I would expect to see that being formalized as the creation of stable coins on top of Bitcoin collateral 
which would be uh, effectively a way to porting over the DAI, the MakerDAI system, to Bitcoin. I'm sure that can be done. There's kind of a, a number of different sort of technological paths to doing that. I don't think it's impossible. I think it's actually possible with current Bitcoin script, potentially. Uh, definitely, if we include some of Jeremy Rubin's stuff um, with covenants. But yeah, I think instrumentalizing Bitcoin as the base asset in this system and understanding that the base layer is more intended and it's more suited for settlement as opposed to inserting every single payment onto that base layer, that makes sense. And part of that is also Bitcoin banking. Um, you know, Bitcoin banking is effectively a way of creating that layered model. Um, and I would look back to the free banking era where gold was the, the kind of base you know, liability-free collateral used for reserves by those free banks, and they issued notes against that gold. This is something that Hal Finney talked about in 2010. Uh, I'd love to see more development in that domain, whereby you have exchanges issuing notes against Bitcoin held on deposit, um, and potentially mutually accepting each other's nodes, uh, creating a vibrant system like that. I think that is a vector scalability that's kind of underexplored so far. That's essentially how I'm viewing it. So yeah, if you look back, you know, a century ago, you had gold as an underlying settlement asset, and then you had, you know, dollars and other currencies kind of based on gold, and entities could could you know deposit them, lend them, get a yield on them, right? Because it's you know it's money built on top of that settlement asset uh, in a more convenient package and in a in a in a more kind of debt based system, uh, whereas the underlying asset is 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 the you know the key collateral. And even today, I mean, you know, it's less it's less common. But for example, India has they they release some gold bonds, right? So India's bar, India as a country, their borrowing rate is pretty high, even for the sovereign, because the, the currency is historically not very good at holding its value. Uh, so they introduce some some gold backed bonds, where you know you get a lower yield than their than their fiat bonds, uh, but it's payable, you know, I believe in either gold or you can take the fiat. And so that's kind of their way of saying, you know, it, it's basically collateralizing a loan. It's saying, you know, here's there's more substance to that to that borrowing in exchange for a lower yield. And from the from the perspective of of the buyer of that bond, it's a way to get yield on gold exposure, but it, it, by it, by taking counterparty risk. So you're taking some degree of counterparty risk. It's not super high because it's a sovereign, but you're taking some counterparty risk and you're getting yield for that. Uh, and so we're starting to kind of see in an accelerated way, Bitcoin, uh, you know do some of the same things that, that we saw gold do over the centuries, which is, you know, be, become an underlying settlement asset and then to see more and more systems built on top of it. That's great. All right. So here's the Ethereum question for you, Nick. Um, well, we're going to get, we're going to get it. This is going to lead into it. Um, so this is from Nate on Telegram and he wonders, uh, are there any specific use cases for crypto dollars, which is your term to describe Tether and GUSD, et cetera? Um, that have surprised you as you've been researching its growth? Um, I don't know about surprise necessarily. Um, the pace of adoption for crypto dollars has certainly surprised me, even though I was probably among the more optimistic kind of watchers in terms of its growth. I mean, exploding from four and a half billion at the start of this year to 16 billion today in the monetary base of crypto dollars is just preposterous growth. It's insane. Um, and the use cases, as we understand them, that you can kind of put the puzzle pieces together. A lot of it has to do with evading capital controls 
in China, for better or for worse. Uh, maybe a lot of people don't like that reality or wish that it was something more innocuous, perhaps. Uh, but there's a huge wealth outflow right now. Those capital controls are barrier to commerce and people are naturally routing around them. And uh, it seems like Tether is actually the favored vehicle for doing that. Uh, now, whether that can be sustained indefinitely is unknown to me. I don't know if that's possible. Uh, I think um, I'd like to see more usage of crypto dollars kind of in a closed loop context instead of just uh, inter-exchange settlement or as a way to hold collateral uh, to interact with crypto exchanges. Uh, but yeah, there's a plethora of uses out there. I think the most interesting one is definitely the dollarization events that we're seeing in Latin America, in particular Venezuela, where crypto dollars are relevant today. Uh, just recently, Juan Guaido, the kind of president in exile, uh, took ownership of something like $18 million worth of funds that were seized uh, by the treasury that were seized from the Maduro regime and distributed them or began a program of distributing them back to Venezuelan nurses and doctors um, through AirTM, which is a kind of a crypto application. Uh, so we're seeing this relevance, this digital dollarization happening in places like Venezuela right now. A lot of that is Bitcoin kind of focused um, I mean, it relies on the kind of Bitcoin infrastructure that's been built there through local Bitcoin. So I think they're, it's pretty synergistic with Bitcoin too. Do you think that Bit, like Bitcoin specifically has a use case or like ability to create crypto dollars on top of Bitcoin? Or is that just like a, a use case that is completely separate from Bitcoin to avoid you know, Bitcoin's volatility for the time being? I think there will be, certainly be ways to do that. It's just a question of exploring them. Uh, I know some Bitcoiners, you know, uh, dismiss DAI, but I think DAI is the most interesting one of all the crypto dollars there because it's aligned in, in that DAIs are ultimately backed for the most part by Ethereum collateral. That would be an interesting model to replicate on Bitcoin uh, with those dollar denominated liabilities ultimately causing reservation demand for Bitcoin. Uh, so I think we actually have something to learn from that system for sure. Nice. Okay, one more Ethereum-based question, then we're going to move on. <laughs> um, you tweeted earlier today that, um, you know, Ethereum fees at all-time high. It's worth revisiting an article that you wrote a while back. Uh, the TLDR being fee-bearing blockchains optimized ruthlessly for the most economically dense transactions at the exclusion of all else. So let's talk a little bit about this idea. And Lynn, I'd love to you know, hear your thoughts on this as well. We'll let Nick start, but maybe we can talk about this idea of ruthlessly optimizing for economically dense transactions and then kind of segue into your latest piece uh, about threats to Bitcoin's fixed supply. Yeah, so I'll lay out the idea uh, first of all. So it's a very simple idea. Effectively, if block space is capped, and it effectively has to be in my opinion, because there's a limit to the kind of computational power that's available on commodity hardware. And there's a limit to bandwidth. There's a limit to storage. All these three bottlenecks mean that node operation, which is single threaded, uh, that, you know, you can only, there's a maximum size to any node. There's a maximum size to the bandwidth that everyone in that network can consume 
uh, and the resources that they can consume. So because of that kind of physical thermodynamic reality, um, there's only so much space available for transactions and the emergent consequence of all that is that the most ethically consequential, the largest typically transactions are the ones that win that access to block space, force out smaller and more frivolous transactions. And this isn't really a problem in Bitcoin. We kind of saw it happen. A lot of those more frivolous use cases got forced out as fees rose. But now with Ethereum fees rising too, there's some of these Ethereum narratives being punctured a little bit about using it for arbitrary uses. And instead, it's more financial uses that are winning out on Ethereum, especially settling large amounts of value, in particular stable coins. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting outcome that's happening. And I guess the pushback you could say is that, well, Ethereum is going to be able to generate a lot more block space, kind of TBD on that. We'll see. In its current form, it's pricing out all other marginal kind of non-financial use cases. And it's only the largest transactions that are actually winning space in the ledger right now, which is a pretty interesting phenomenon to witness. Lynn, what do you think about the, uh, I mean, have you thought much about like the, the fee market, the blockchain, um, the you know, potential for Bitcoin in the future uh, to become like more insecure because of a, a dying fee market, right? Uh, there's no subsidy anymore uh, coming in from, from the blocks, uh, block reward to miners. Um, and perhaps Bitcoin wouldn't be able to sustain security based on fees alone. Um, does that... Uh, frighten you at all or is it an attack vector that you've considered viable? Uh, something I've considered, uh, you know, back in 2017 was when I was examining the protocol and I didn't invest at the time. It was, it was towards the end of that big, you know, the previous halving cycle, the big, the big run up in 2017. Uh, you know, one of my, I was watching that whole debate about block size and things like that, you know, and especially as someone who's not a, you know, I'm a more macro focused person rather than not, not a, a Bitcoin or crypto focused person. And so I was just kind of watching that and it, you know, it kind of came down to whether or not Bitcoin is intended as a medium of exchange first and foremost, or more of a, a store of value first and foremost. And, you know, it seems, you know, my investment case in Bitcoin is more about the store of value. So I perceive it more as like a digital gold as a, as a long-term settlement asset, as, you know, a way to store something in, in scarcity. Uh, and, you know, I would welcome any sort of more efficient systems built on top of that, you know, secure and, and, and efficient ways to break that apart. I agree with Nick that you know you know just just looking at the math of it, obviously less detailed than him, but but essentially that you know that the way it works is that if you have a finite space, you have to prioritize largest transactions as you shift more and more towards a fee-based system because the fees become larger, but that becomes less consequential if the transaction is very large. Uh, and you know there, there's always it's it's one of the inherent risks of Bitcoin as you know as you shift towards a more fee-based model. You could have, for example, seen a version of Bitcoin that has all the same identity, but say instead of a hard 20, 21 million cap, you could have had something that, that still increases by a small fixed rate every year. And in that sense, the block subsidy stays there and there's a very tiny low inflation rate and that kind of pays for the ongoing security of the network, right? So that, that is one option they could have gone with, but of course that takes away from the story of, of absolute scarcity and things like that. Even though I, I personally would still invest in, in a network like that because at least the, the scarcity is still known, right? So even if it's, if it's not a hard cap, if it's a very slow increasing cap, what you're basically doing would be you'd be taking, you know, basically in, in the feed model, you're, you're kind of taxing the people that are using it to transact and you're not, you're not really taxing people that are using it to store long-term. 
Whereas if you have that kind of built in small inflation, you'd be kind of uh, chipping away at both the people using it for storage and for transacting. And that's kind of a design choice and it, it could have gone either way and it went one way in particular. So I think as we go down this route, as the, as the, you know, the having cycles continue, we are going to look more and more toward transactions. And I think it's, you know, it's something to watch, something to see how the protocol develops, how security develops around that. Uh, you know, I think it's a risk to be aware of. I think it's still early uh, pretty much in that process. Uh, but I think, you know, that Nick's approach makes sense, which is that, you know, as that develops over time, it's going to prioritize bigger transactions and increase the importance of these, these other types of networks that are on top of it. Yeah. Nick, you have a good kind of visualization or metaphor for thinking about uh, blocks in Bitcoin. Uh, I know we have a lot of like, you know, new users or new Bitcoiners, uh, new coiners uh, that listen to this show and watch the show. Could you uh, kind of describe or give us the metaphor about how, like, I think it's the tanker ship metaphor. And it's like what I like to call it. That's yours, right? Oh, yeah. Is that the one with individual transactions being like bundles of many transactions? Yeah, right. that's pretty much the metaphor. Yeah. So <laughs> the important thing to understand is that a Bitcoin transaction can include many payments and that there's a fixed overhead in every single transaction. But through mechanisms like batching, you can reduce that fixed cost for many payments. And people don't know that a single Bitcoin transaction can include 3000 outputs, for instance, and obviously an arbitrary amount of value. So I think the challenge of the big consumers of block space is to engage in those efficiency gaining measures, which actually, to their credit, Coinbase finally did this after about two years of demurring. I wrote an article two years ago saying, Coinbase, why aren't you batching? Uh, you should do it. And then two weeks ago, I think they said, hey, we're batching now. So I, that fee pressure, it does have the interesting externality of punishing the entities that use the blockchain that aren't using it efficiently. So it relentlessly forces optimization from those end users of the blockchain, which is another really nice externality of the fees. It forces you to engage in these space-saving measures. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always, th that image has always stuck out in my mind, is thinking about Bitcoin as sort of like a tanker ship, you know, and the blocks is these little, like, uh, you know, tank, um, sorry, containers on the ship, and not as these, you know, little tiny transactions for coffee and stuff. It's like these giant international yeah. settle settlement transactions, yeah. Um, and the point is really like, if you look at Bitcoin analogs, we're talking about Fedwire or the interbank clearinghouse systems. We're not talking about uh, Venmo necessarily or PayPal. Uh, we're talking because those are systems that are built on top of these other clearinghouses and settlement networks. Bitcoin is the settlement network. Uh, Bitcoin isn't necessarily the payment system. You could, in theory, go about your day making all your transactions with bank wires. You could do that. Uh, there'd be a $10 fee. I sent a bank wire yesterday. I had to get on the phone to my bank for 45 minutes and there's a $10 fee uh, and it's going to take two days to settle or whatever. So you could do that the same way that you could use Bitcoin base layer for all of your everyday quotidian payments. Uh, but ultimately, I think that's not the way it's going to go. I think there's going to be other systems built on top of Bitcoin. Bitcoin will uh, kind of fulfill its destiny as a settlement network. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So on your podcast, Nick, uh, you had Lynn on, maybe it was a couple of months ago or six weeks ago or so, um, on the Brink podcast. It's Nick's podcast, Castle Island Ventures produces it. Um, and you guys started talking about the financialization of our global economy and then kind of moved on to something else. But I'd like to dive more into it. So 
Lynn, can you give us kind of a rundown of the history of, you know, the financialization of the economy over the past few decades and, and what role the fiat standard has, has played in that process? You mean as it pertains to kind of the global reserve status or, or the more domestic focus? Uh, both, but yeah, I think start with like the global reserve uh, aspect. Sure. So it's actually, it's, it's two interesting points that I, that I find often discussed in media is, is the way that the global reserve status works. So one is the idea that, that there's always a global reserve currency kind of like the one we have now. So ours, the one now is actually uh, against what the media often describes. The one that's in, been in place since the early 70s is actually very unique. So in, in prior kind of historical periods, you know, precious metals were, the, especially gold was the underlying, uh, you know, settlement asset. And then you had some paper currencies that, that for a time, uh, you know, were bright, were broadly accepted because, you know, those countries had the most, you know, the biggest navies, they went around the world, they did the most trade. And so they were, they were recognized currencies that, that were, that were, you know, accepted in many places. Uh, but of course, as the world got smaller, so as we got more interconnected, and of course, you know, the, the big climax of World War II, that's, that's when the dollar took the role as the, the global reserve currency. And at the time, it was backed by gold and other, other currencies backed themselves to the dollar. So you had this big fixed exchange system. And then that all broke in, the, in you know, 1971. And then in the early 70s after that, they, they kind of redeveloped it as the petrodollar system. So it's the idea that, that most oil around the world uh, is priced in dollars and most other commodities as well. So even if, if France buys oil from Saudi Arabia, they pay in dollars, even though the dollar is neither of their underlying currencies. And so that, that's kind of forced the dollar as you know, a, a global reserve currency in a way that, that previous global reserve currencies never had. So no, no previous global reserve currency had a worldwide lock on, com on commodities, that, that pretty much all commodity pricing worldwide happens in that currency. So that's kind of a, a unique thing about this, this period, which uh, you know, is, is starting to cause some problems. The second thing is the idea that, that if, if the dollar you know, in any way loses currency reserve status, that it means that another currency has to come along uh, you know, another fiat currency has to come along and take it. So one of the, one of the you know, if you say that like, the dollar might, might, the reserve status might change a little bit, the first question is like, well, who's going to replace it? Is it going to be the euro? Like, you know, is it going to be the ch Chinese currency? Of course not, right? So how, how can those, they're not better than, do than the dollar. So the, the kind of answer to that approach is that after World War II, you know, because Europe and Japan were so devastated and emerging markets were so small, the United States was nearly 40% of global GDP. So they had a big enough money supply and could do enough commodity consumption and could run big trade deficits. And they could basically supply the world with this currency that they now have a hard lockover. But over time, as Europe you know, developed back up and as Japan developed back up and as emerging markets grew, especially China, uh, the United States percent of global GDP shrank. And so now it's in you know, the ballpark of 20% or even less if you look at purchasing power parity. And the United States is no longer the world's largest commodity importer. That's China. Uh, so we're kind of at a situation now where there's no individual country or currency that's large enough to be the global reserve currency. There's no, there's no money supply for a specific country that is big enough and running big enough trade deficits and doing all these things that there's enough of it around that only that currency can be used for oil pricing. And so over time, we've, we've seen slow chipping away at, at the dollar's lock. Uh, so for example, since the, the euro was created over the past 20 years, uh, we've seen the dollar's percentage in, in currency reserves decline from about 70% to about 60% worldwide. 
And if you actually include gold, that, that's gone down even more. So, so gold's taken a stronger role, especially in the past five, six, seven years. Uh, and so, and if you look at even just the last couple of years, if you look at, for example, China's trade with Russia. So, so more than two years ago, that was almost entirely dollar-based. Uh, but over the past two years, you know, especially in 2018 and to some extent 2019, they de-dollarized a lot of that. Uh, so a lot of that is now euro-based, even though neither of them, you know, euro is not really their, their primary currency, but they've diversified their currency exposure in their trade, which because it's Russia, most likely involves energy. Uh, so we, we're starting to see kind of things like that play out where we're, we're most likely headed towards a more multipolar currency world rather than one currency having a lock on like all global commodity pricing. That's kind of been my, the, the trend that I've been following to some extent. Yeah, Nick, anything to flesh out there in the history of uh, international financialization? And, uh, and then I want to come back to talking about the domestic finance industry too and, and some of the uh, things that have happened and derivatives on derivatives, et cetera. <laughs> Well, I, Lynn is obviously the expert there, and I, I learn a huge amount from her commentary as well. Um, but uh, I would say that um, as we see this multipolar world emerging, um, it, there's going to be plenty of room for credibly neutral settlement assets, the same way that when you had the international um, maritime trade system that developed initially, the units that were the unit of account for that trade was gold and silver uh, as opposed to any other uh, more local kind of commodities or IOUs or credit instruments or anything like that because there's a liability free. Uh, the same thing with digital commodities like Bitcoin, those make for great uh, neutral assets uh, to conduct commerce in. I'm not saying that's, you know, it's destined to be the global reserve currency or anything like that, but it's certainly, uh, it's great that it exists as a suitable alternative as potentially this kind of New York based dollar clearing system uh, loses some of its influence. Maybe alternatives to SWIFT emerge uh, as the world just gets more fragmented uh, and, uh, and, uh, as, and, you know, international finance becomes slightly more difficult. Yeah. I agree uh, to what his, particularly his point about uh, kind of a neutral uh, asset being, you know, pretty important in that system. So for example, you know, over the past five, six years, as we've seen, uh, you know, foreign, foreign central banks have not really continued their accumulation of treasuries, right? So we've seen a flatlining of treasuries. We've seen an uptick in their gold purchases, right? So we've seen, especially the last couple of years, we've seen 50-year highs in central bank gold, gold purchases. And then if you sort it by, you know, which countries are most aggressively de-dollarizing, right? So Russia's near the top. And over the past five, 10 years, they've been buying gold hand over fist. So they're not, you know, they're not loading up on tons of euros. They're not loading up on tons of, of yuan, right? They're, they're uh, relying heavily on gold as their, as their kind of a settlement asset. Uh, so in that sense, you know, currencies in that sort of multipolar world shift a little bit more towards medium of exchange uh, rather than as stores of value, which is, which is essentially the system you saw before the petrodollar system, where it was really gold that was the global sort of currency uh, with, with the dollar kind of being the more convenient layer onto that. And then other currencies were layered onto the dollar. Uh, and then before then you had other, other global reserve currencies that were backed by gold and they were accepted because of their association with gold. Uh, so, you know, going forward, it, it definitely increases the importance of, of whether it's gold or whether it's other neutral, you know, kind of counterparty free scarce assets uh, that they kind of can underlie that system 
more so than than having one currency you know kind of the one ring to rule them all sort of situation right it's 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 there's no one ring there's a bunch of rings and they have to negotiate between themselves what they're going to accept as as either you know recognizing each other's credit credit worthiness or what they're going to use as a medium of exchange great great all right let's do a quick one on the domestic question here so the you know american financial industry has developed um I want to know, like, how how has the fiat standard enabled that, or you know, interacted with that development in any way? And how would the finance industry look different on a Bitcoin standard? Well, there's there's sort of been there's a couple of different layers to that question. So, uh, you know, a theme that I've been pointing out over the past couple of years is the long-term debt cycle, which which uh, is phrasing that that Ray Dalio of Bridgewater uses, which is you know, over, over a five to ten year business cycle, you the the you know, they kind of the domestic economy accumulates debt as a percentage of their GDP, and then some sort of, you know, it becomes increasingly fragile and leveraged, and then some sort of catalyst happens, you know, whether it's a, sometimes it comes out of nowhere, sometimes it's just an asset bubble collapses, other times there's some external catalyst like a pandemic or something, and then that forces, a, you know, an economic slowdown, which then enforces a period of deleveraging, which can then further the economic slowdown uh, until the system kind of resolves itself and, and starts building up from there. The problem, though, is that in every one of those cycles, you know, as interest rates get lower and lower, it encourages more and more debt accumulation. So every cycle ends up with a higher level of debt than, you know, the previous cycle. So you only deleverage half the way, you build up from there, you hit new highs, then you deleverage half the way again, and you, so you keep building up. And then what happens eventually is interest rates hit zero. So you hit the zero bound. And historically, that, that tends to happen you know, if you go back in history, the last time that happened was the 1930s, right? So it's, you know, Ray Dalio often likes to refer to the 80-year long-term debt cycle, but of course, the exact time frame can vary. And as, you know, if you look back in, in previous, you know, you can, you can track those debt bubbles all the way back for centuries, uh, but they tend to be smaller because the economies are less financialized. They have less, they have less compl- complicated or sophisticated uh, investments and, and vehicles that can allow for that level of debt accumulation. Uh, but when you have a very kind of, uh, you know, interconnected, uh, you know, very fast, very kind of financialized economy, they can build up much higher debt levels. Uh, but that means that that when you start to unwind that, it can be a lot more painful. Uh, so each debt bubble, so in addition to each short-term debt cycle kind of building on the previous one, each one of these long-term debt cycles tends to hit a higher peak than the, than the one from nearly a century ago. And that's kind of where we are now where there's, you know, I can, I can chart in kind of 30 different ways how 1930s and 1940s have a lot of similarities so far to the 2010s and the 2020s, uh, you know, kind of directly each one or the other. Uh, so, you know, as you go forward, I think we're seeing a gradual definancialization probably happening. Uh, but a lot of that can depend on policy and a lot of that can depend on kind of the details of how this plays out. But definitely that, that current cycle is now pressured. And if we were to an economy on a Bitcoin standard, um, how would that be different? I mean, would we be able to even, would it be, as we were talking about earlier, it would be di- more difficult to reapplicate and, and create derivatives based on Bitcoin because it is so easily settle, settled. Uh, final settlement is democratized, uh, if we want to put it that way. Um, so could a financial industry like the one we currently have uh, even exist on a Bitcoin denominated world? Uh, probably not to, not to the same uh, level of, of debt. So for example, one of the complicated things about gold standards, right, is that in theory, a gold standard standard should restrict spending and should should kind of uh, lead to more 
financially prudent decisions. But what happens in practice is that they build up debt anyway, and then they have to depeg from gold uh, in order to 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 you know resolve that. So you basically build up such a, such a a big debt burden, and it starts kind of all unraveling like a Jenga tower, and then they 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 depeg it. Uh, and then you, so even though gold didn't fail, the gold peg ended up failing. And so uh, that, that's kind of been the historical case with, with, you know, kind of a gold peg or trying to have non-fiat currency that it, it still doesn't fix human nature. Essentially, it just kind of, it kind of grounds human nature, but it doesn't, it doesn't kind of uh, stop that process from happening. Now, Bitcoin standard, sure, it definitely opens up new kind of approaches to try to solidify that. So you can, you can authenticate uh, reserves to use, to use Nick's point, for example, you know, we, we know how much the United States, for example, claims to have in gold reserves, but do we know how many how much gold they have? Same thing with China. They claim to have a certain amount. Uh, a lot of people think they have far more. We don't know. We, no one really knows. That we just see what they say they have. Same with a lot of countries in Europe. They, they have a certain amount of gold that they claim they have. Bitcoin can, you know, authenticate that more if you had kind of that, that newer technology instead. Uh, and there's also, yeah, how, how quickly it can settle. Uh, things like that. It all it all really comes down to how how many layers you want to build on top of something, and how and how kind of uh, easily people trust those layers, and then what kind of fiscal monetary policy are are happening so that people are more inclined or less inclined to trust those various layers. Sure, sure. Nick, there's there's a lot there to chew on. Did you want to? Do you have any reactions you wanted to share here? Yeah, I I really like Flynn's that you can't change human nature and the whole notion of a standard is one where you peg your currency to a monetary commodity and but there's still a need doing that pegging um and uh maintaining the peg and in some cases discretionarily de-pegging uh and we see this time and again with democracies uh the the scope of what that state is expected to do generally grows over time and then you end up with a reckoning over time uh, as those entitlements kind of come due. Um, and uh, that seems like kind of an intrinsic problem. I don't even know if the monetary commodity at the base of the system, I don't know if that can actually help the problem. Uh, but the beauty of Bitcoin is that it allows us to decouple our finances from the state's purview. Uh, and if the state is illegitimate or in the process of failing, we can exit that state at least from a financial in a financial sense. Uh, although then obviously you have to complete the exit in all the other contexts in which you exist in that state. But to me, that's the important thing is that it gives you that discretion uh, to exit in uh, extenuating circumstances. And we are literally seeing you know, the crypto industry being used to evade capital controls uh, for asylum seekers, for people that are fleeing uh, states have no legitimacy, they have no credibility. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping that won't be the case in the U.S. You know, I, I would love for the U.S. to kind of regain its authority. Uh, but the important thing is that we do have a state independent monetary commodity, which is highly portable, which individuals can use uh, to potentially opt out um, and, uh, and maybe create, you know, smaller uh, or more novel political units. And so, you know, I'm not optimistic about the U.S. Um, adopting a Bitcoin standard or any such mechanism, uh, but I am optimistic about individuals being empowered relative to 
the Leviathan, so to speak, you know, relative to the state and potentially being able to exit if, if they need to. That's how I view it. And uh, so a couple points there. If you look back in U.S. history, after the, after the previous, um, uh, you know, big long-term debt cycle, the big high debt to GDP period in the 1930s, uh, there was a, a nearly 40-year period where if you, if you bought and held treasuries, you underperformed inflation, right? So you, you lost purchasing power by holding government debt or by holding money in a bank account. Uh, and uh, not, not um, coincidentally, during that almost exact time period was when gold was legal for Americans to own. Uh, uh, both in the U.S. and it, they couldn't even own it outside of the country. You just were barred legally from owning it. Now, a lot of people still owned it. It's hard to enforce, but uh, it, was, it was illegal from the mid-30s to the mid-70s uh, for Americans to own gold. And that was the exact you know, period where, where people would want that release valve, where, where the fiat money was not holding its value, was, was devaluing. Uh, so, so debts were, even though debts didn't really decrease nominally that much, they were, they were reduced as a percentage of GDP, partially from growth and partially from inflation. And so, uh, you know, Bitcoin, so gold is still, still to some extent one of those off-ramps off people can use. And, and Bitcoin is, is an, uh, a, a more accessible way to do that and a, a, a more efficient way that people can quickly opt in and out of a system. And so I uh, bring up Rao because you brought up Rao earlier. He's pointing out that, that uh, you know, that's been happening to some extent in Turkey, for example, where, you know, they, they've had some currency challenges uh, recently and Bitcoin represents one of the ways that they, they, can, they can pull capital out and then put it back in and pull, pull it out, pull it back in as a way of preserving wealth. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that that's to have that system so, so easily accessible, uh, you know, kind of worldwide is, is it definitely changes the game, right? Because, you know, if people have that quicker release valve, uh, it definitely changes how fiats have to operate uh, if they want not to have a ton of exodus that way. Yeah. Uh, all right. We're going to slide in one last question here before we head out. Um, so next week we're going to have Eric Townsend on the show. Uh, he'll be along with our co-founder Jan Pritzker and he'll be talking about uh, CBDCs or central bank digital currencies and Bitcoin. And, you know, Eric is a fan of Bitcoin. He wants Bitcoin to work as a libertarian and, and to empower people as we've been talking about here, but he's of the opinion that uh, central bank digital currency, like the Fed coin, or as he calls it, the Orwell will um, you know, be mandated essentially uh, upon the world or at least this country and, um, you know, have all the opposite properties of Bitcoin. Um, so, Nick, what are your thoughts on the prospects of CBDCs and, you know, the prospect of, you know, an Orwell coin developing and kind of making Bitcoin uh, impotent? I think... Um... I certainly think that that's likely, actually, the, the first part of that statement, not Bitcoin being impotent. Um, I think it's likely that we do get a CBDC, effectively a digital representation of cash uh, in this country. I'm not optimistic that that would have the same privacy or autonomy characteristics that physical cash gives you. Um, my reasoning for that is that physical cash has been systematically devalued in terms of what you can do with it by... U.S. jurisprudence over the last uh, 40 years, effectively, um, with the Bank Secrecy Act and some Supreme Court cases, uh, including the installation of the third party doctrine, that means that effectively you have no transactional privacy in the U.S. And also cash transactions um, need to be reported at a lower and lower real threshold. Uh, so 
the scope of things you can do with physical cash in this country keeps getting smaller and smaller. And my, my guess is that uh, that's unlikely to change anytime soon. And uh, in effect, if we do get a, a, a digital form of cash uh, that, that you know, represents Federal Reserve dollars, uh, there's going to be very limited privacy, unfortunately. Uh, all the discourse I've seen treats privacy as kind of an implementation detail rather than sort of a core value that the system would enshrine. Now, where I would disagree with Eric would be in the allegation that because we're going to get some sort of panopticon coin, which is government administered, that means there's no scope for Bitcoin. I would say that is an enormous argument in favor of the existence of Bitcoin, that you would have something which is state independent. Um, and, you know, I'm not optimistic that the United States would be able to control everybody's transactional usage and privacy. First of all, I think it would be unconstitutional. Um, to have uh, such an enormous invasion of privacy. Um, and I think the fact that the U.S. has to a certain degree embraced Bitcoin already is a really great sign. Um, so I don't think the U.S. is destined to go down this totalitarian path of kind of financial surveillance the same way China has so far. My guess is that there will always be space for Bitcoin. But if it does, um, Bitcoin is going to demand for Bitcoin will be even greater uh, because the alternative would be much worse. Uh, so, you know, I think to the extent that there is some sort of CBDC, which ha lacks privacy uh, qualities, um, th there will be a countervailing demand for Bitcoin uh, as something which gives you much greater autonomy and potentially privacy. I agree. I think, I think you know, I, again, the, the first part of that, I think that treasuries and central banks around the world, you know, over time will probably adopt some of these technologies uh, you know, for, for better or worse, you know, in some ways it, it makes things more efficient. Uh, it, it makes, you know, tax fraud harder to do things like that, but then it violates, it violates pri pri privacy. Another thing that they want to be able to do with it, for example, is do more targeted stimulus. So for example, they can hand out those types of, uh, you know, kind of controlled uh, coins and then they can have them so that they're programmed to be only usable in a certain jurisdiction or only usable within a certain time period or only usable on certain types. So that, that kind of technology gives them greater control, which of course can take very dark roots, especially if you look at China and their social credit score and, their, and the kind of the, the degree that they're willing to go uh, to take away freedoms. Uh, and, but even in the US, you know, bar, like considering what's constitutional, the fact that the, that the United States banned gold for over 40 years, uh, you know, they, they just kind of like looked at property rights and went, eh, it, it's not convenient. So. Uh, the thing about Bitcoin is that it's much harder to, to, to enforce that. So it's it already actually very hard to enforce that on gold. So, you know, very few prosecutions or legal issues happen around people owning gold. Like, so there's actually, it was a very hard to enforce and not heavily enforced uh, law, even though it, it was illegal and punishable by pretty severe consequences. So with Bitcoin, uh, it, it's, you know, you can't raise someone's house and get it unless they just have their, you know, their private wallet sitting there. Uh, and so, there, you know, there's there's more ways to protect it. It's harder to prove someone has it, uh, and um, you know, it's it's a more internationally portable thing. And uh, we've already seen that governments, including the most governments, including the U.S., have gone in the direction of accepting it more and more. So we're now that we see more institutional, uh, you know, interest in the asset class, uh, it, it kind of gets less likely every day that that the government try to ban it because as you get bigger and bigger it becomes messier and messier to try to ban that. And, you know, we, we've already seen periods of civil unrest, right? So imagine if, if there's a currency issue, it's kind of like the, the, the period where they, they'd want to ban Bitcoin 
is is kind of like so when they banned gold in the U.S., the next thing they did was was almost cut the dollar's value in, in half compared to gold, right? So the, actually, the best thing you want to do is somehow, if you could, own gold. Uh, and uh, so with Bitcoin, it's like if they ever get to the point where they try to outright ban property, that means likely something is not going well with the currency, right? So you're likely to see kind of pushback against that or, you know, again, it's a hard to enforce thing. And it's almost like that's exactly the sort of asset that, that people would want to own. Uh, of course, I would never, you know, publicly say anyone should violate the law or anything, but it's just looking at, looking at the history of, of how those laws are difficult to enforce. It just kind of, it's not a very elegant solution for, on the behalf of government to try to ban those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well said and well said. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. It was a lot of fun. Um, we'll wrap it up real quick. Remember you can uh, sign up for daily buys at swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys. Uh, we have Eric Townsend and Jan Pritzker on next week. That'll be a great show. Tune in. Uh, we also have Raul Powell and DJ Boyapati uh, on the slate for later in September already confirmed. That's going to be a great show. So subscribe to the YouTube channel now uh, at youtube.com slash swan signal, turn on those notifications. And if you like the audio, you can find the podcast at swansignalpodcast.com. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Len. Really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks to Lynn and Nick for joining us today. You can find Lynn on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact. That's L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N Contact. And Nick is at Nick double underscore Carter. I am at Citizen Bitcoin and you can find Swan at Swan Bitcoin. On behalf of the Swan team, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. It's really fun to join us on the YouTube broadcasts live at youtube.com slash swansignal. Head over there, subscribe, turn on the notifications. We have a ton of fun in the live chat, and we often work in some questions from listeners. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys.